This is an incredibly special podcast for me because Dr. Gadu was my philosophy professor when I was at the University of Richmond, and I got my major in philosophy and classical civilization. And it was such a pleasure to just have a true philosopher on the podcast to explore all kinds of both silly and complex issues. Complex being issues involving time travel and silly being answering the question, what came first, the chicken or the egg? And if a tree falls in the woods and no one is there to hear it, does it make a sound? And we've got answers for you on this podcast, as philosophers do. And of course, these answers are nuanced and explore different mechanisms of philosophy including one of my favorite mechanisms, which is symbolic logic, which is basically using logic like mathematics to prove actually a conclusion based on a set of premises. This was a phenomenal experience to reconnect with my old professor and to do a true philosophy podcast. So without further ado, Dr. Gadu. But before we get started, a word from our sponsors. First up, we have Four Visions Market. And Four Visions Market is kind of my go-to place for a lot of shamanic tools. It supports over 30 different indigenous artists and their families through more than fair trade purchase of so their spiritual tools and art. They got high quality made in prayer medicines. It's a bridge to over 15 Amazonian tribes that are sharing their traditions and really their magic and medicine. 50% of the proceeds are going to go directly to the tribes, artisans, and healers. And on top of that, Four Visions Market donates 10% of their profits to their partner nonprofit movement for Amazonian growth in indigenous cultures. They call it the Magic Fund and other different Amazonian operations with missions that are aligned with their values. This year, Four Visions Market, they're spearheading a native plant reforestation and seed preservation project in the Colombian Amazon, as well as a bunch of different support for the Putumayo region and the hundreds of indigenous people there. The tools from the Four Visions Markets, they're all handcrafted. If you're talking about caripes or tepes, and all of the different botanicals, they're wild harvested again in sacred prayer, again in sacred prayer and the proper way. And you're really receiving, you know, genuine medicinal tools from these incredible traditions that have deeply impacted my life. So some of the products they include, they have an ambi sacha yage microdose tincture, ceremonial grade cacaos, Amazonian king nettle. Melipona honey eye drops for eye health, nausea oil for nasal support, a chilcuagwe healing spray, and of course, their hape, which I absolutely love. So if you're interested in any of these goodies, check out fourvisionsmarket.com, F-O-U-R, visionsmarket.com, and use the code AMP, AMP, for 15% off your very first order. Next up, we have Mudwater. Now, mud water is one of my favorite products that are out there in the health and wellness better for you space. It's a coffee alternative. It has four adaptogenic mushrooms. It has cacao, Ayurvedic herbs, and it's really a coffee alternative. It has a fraction of the caffeine of a cup of coffee, but I do like a little bit of caffeine and mud water just hits that sweet spot. It doesn't have a bunch of sugar or anything in there. So if you want to add your own sweetener, you're welcome to, or if you're mixing it in a shake or a warm morning drink like I often do. It's just really a kind of a perfect product, and it's no surprise that Mudwater has done so well as a company because it's just phenomenal, and phenomenal all the way up, all the way down, not only from the quality of ingredients, the flavor profile, and also just the customer service and the ethos of the company itself. I am a huge fan, 
And again, cacao and chai for mood and a microdose of caffeine. They got lion's mane, which helps with cognitive support and alertness. Cordyceps, which is the flagship ingredient in our product, Shroom Tech Sport from Onnit. It's got chaga and reishi to support your immune system and offer that little bit of calm that comes with the reishi mushroom. Turmeric is also one of those great products for any kind of stiffness or soreness you might be feeling. And cinnamon, which is an ingredient that's very close to my heart, that also has a bunch of antioxidants and actually in high enough amounts can help with blood sugar regulation. I talk about that a bit in my book, Own the Day. So mud water is just one of those things that if you're curious about a coffee alternative and you like making delicious beverages, whether they're smoothies or hot drinks, I highly recommend it. It's Whole30 approved, 100% USDA organic, non-GMO, gluten-free, vegan, kosher certified. It's got all the goods. So go to mudwater.com slash amp. That's M-U-D-W-T-R.com slash amp. And use the code Aubrey to get 15% off at checkout. Once again, the code Aubrey for 15% at checkout. Next up, we have Apollo Neuro. Now, Apollo is a stress relief wearable that is designed to help you become a calmer, more mindful version of yourself through touch therapy. And it does this by providing these warm, pulsing sensations that actually go through the device. And it's really interesting to feel the effects that this has on your nervous system. It's something that Vailana and I will use both when we're in a medicine journey or a meditation or sometimes a breathwork experience. But honestly, it doesn't have to be during any of those experiences. The effects of the Apollo wearable will be noticeable whether you're actually paying attention to it or not, or whether you're in one of those transformational or transcendental states or not. Some of the results of the clinical trials that they've done on Apollo Neuro have shown that users experience 40% less stress and feelings of anxiety, 19% more time in deep sleep, up to 25% increases in focus and concentration. And all of these different effects are based on different programs and different pulses that the Apollo Neuro actually pushes through in the vibrational mechanism of the device itself. Just like our brain waves pulse at different frequencies that allows us to actually access different states of consciousness, this is working in not exactly the same way, but it's working in a similar way, pushing out different frequencies of pulses that are sensed by the skin and received by the nervous system. It's a really cool device developed by neuroscientists and doctors. You may have heard Dr. Dave Rabin talk about it on my podcast already. So if you're interested, go to apolloneuro.com slash Aubrey. That's Apollo, N-E-U-R-O.com slash Aubrey, and you will get $40 off of the wearable. And finally, we have Onnit. Now, everybody's heard me talk about Onnit. Why? Because I created Onnit largely as a solution to everything that I've wanted to have available for my own life. So it's just expanding the toolbox of all of the tools that are available. I actually had somebody ask me recently, they're saying, what do you do with all of the different supplements and biohacking techniques and everything that you're aware of? How do you fit it all in? And my explanation was really, look, I've spent the time to get familiar with all of the different tools, all of the different supplements, all of the foods, all of the practices. And I don't do everything every single day. That would be crazy. But I know which tool to apply to which situation to bring out the total human optimization that I'm looking for in that given moment. So 
That's how I do it. And on it is a huge indelible part of this process for me. And I know it will be for you. So check out everything we have on it.com slash Aubrey for 10% off always. Once again, onnit.com slash Aubrey. And now an uninterrupted podcast with Dr. Jeff Gadu. Dr. Gadu, Aubrey, it's been 18 years, I guess. Since I graduated University of Richmond as a philosophy classics double major, and you were my favorite philosophy professor, and Dr. Walt Stevenson, my favorite classics professor. And I had this huge urge just to reach out and just, first of all, get in touch and just say how much I appreciated my time learning and studying philosophy with you, not only for the content that we learned, but just the meta process of thinking about problems the way that you thought about problems. And that left an indelible impact on my life. And I think probably more than even I'm aware of and conscious of, and probably more than you're conscious of, which is you're teaching material, but you're not teaching material, you're teaching how to access material. And that's like, to me, the real beauty of philosophy, whether it's you're studying epistemology or whatever, it doesn't matter. It's how do you approach the information that you have and uh, and you did just such a great job with enthusiasm and life force and also just razor sharp logic and all of the other tools that you use so i just want to really first before we get started just honor that well i appreciate that i mean <laughs> as an educator i'm gonna i'm gonna take all the praise i can get um because sometimes you know you get students who I can't tell whether I've reached them or made an impact. I, I know they've taken my class. I know they've gotten a grade mm-hmm. and I don't hear or see from them beyond that. And I'm like, all right, did, did I make a difference? Did I right. actually change somebody's way of thinking or even just make them a, a better thinker, a better way of approaching various problems. So mm-hmm. great. Thank you. Success. Oh, success. <laughs> one in the books. You, well, you got one, one win. One in check the, mark. There we go. You got one win clearly in the books. It's on the record. <laughs> right. It's on the record. It's been recorded. So we studied a lot of different interesting things. And, uh, and one of the things that actually was part of the impulse for me to reach out was symbolic logic. And since graduating Richmond, I have never heard a single soul speak about it. And frankly, I forgot about it for about 10 years. And then I remember I was making a very logical argument and people were trying to refute the argument in completely illogical ways. And I was like, this is so frustrating. This is like, this is, if you believe my premises, you must believe the conclusion. (laughs) You know, like this, like you cannot argue, you can argue with the premise, but you cannot argue with my logic. And I remembered symbolic logic and that's what it was all about. It was like the mathematics of logic. Right, so... I mean, symbolic logic uh, in its most common form these days is focused on exactly that part of reasoning. The, if my premises are true, does that sort of force my conclusion to be true? Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you're right. Maybe you think, hey, my premises aren't true. But if you actually think it has, the argument has that property, premise is true, therefore conclusion is true. If you accept my premises, you got no choice. Right. If you want to remain being a logical person, you are forced to say that the conclusion is true. Right? right. So like I'd say, you know, hey, all swans are white. George is a swan. You'd better believe, if you believe both of those premises, <laughs> yeah, you better yeah. believe George is white. <laughs> right? right. I mean, right. you have no way around it. 
Um, so yeah, it can definitely be frustrating when, like, what 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 are, what are you saying <laughs> when right. you say, oh yeah, I believe those premises, but I don't accept your conclusion, and you accept that it's a valid argument? Yeah, I don't get that. Yeah. Um, but it's hard to say. Not we don't always get our arguments to be valid. Sometimes it's just. Look, these premises don't force that conclusion, but they make it highly probable. Right. And yeah, you've got some wiggle room, but come on, now you've got to give me some reasons to say why we're in that sort of 2% probability zone rather than the 98% probability that because of these premises, therefore that conclusion. But that's just a little wiggle room. Yeah. And in the way that it looks like when you actually put it out, and it's difficult in an audio podcast to right. talk about this, right? And we, we were aware of this as we knew we were going to talk <laughs> about bad. this. But it, it's almost like an algebraic, you know, equation, the right. way that you do that. And there's right. spe specific symbols for the if-thens. Right. If this, then this. And it's this little horseshoe that goes to the left. Right, right. yeah. Uh, and then there's there's some other things that are like, like and this yep. and this and, yep. and that's like a little dot right it can be well it depends on your system right but all it is is different people choosing different symbols to represent the exact same thing yeah so some systems do the and with a dot some do it with the ampersand some mm -hmm. do it with an upside down carrot symbol right but it's all doing the same job right um it's it's funny you talk about logic and algebra because uh logic in its symbolic form in the modern version, really start, you really start to see it in the 1840s out of Augustus de Morgan and Boole, who were mathematicians, but they were trying to come up with a way to say, how can we get people to do, accept our mathematical proofs uh, and see that, hey, yeah, these premises force that conclusion within the realm of mathematics. Mm -hmm. And then they, but they wanted to be general in the sense that, oh, we could be talking about algebra. We could right. be talking about geometry. We could be talking about calculus. We could be talking about integers. We could, whatever they wanted to talk so, about. So some idea like if the if if there is a square root of negative one, one then, then this, I am able to do this, this particular thing. thing. Yes. Right. This particular thing is logically impossible, hence no right. natural square root of negative one, right? Yeah. And, but at that reasoning, you want to be able to apply not just to mathematics, but it turns out early 20th century, a lot of philosophers who were suddenly very interested in the workings of language started adopting a lot of those tools and applying them to uh, language generally. So, mm -hmm. And that's much more, uh, much closer to what we do now when we teach logic as I teach it as, hey, this is sort of a model for reasoning in language. If, uh, if the sky is uh, blue, then um, the ground is wet. The sky is blue, the ground is wet. Horrible argument, right? Because mm -hmm. I'm not going to accept the if-then premise. Yeah. But I do know that if those things are connected that way, I should accept the conclusion. And if they're right. not, I have a reason to say, um, not necessarily reject the conclusion, but to say, you haven't given me enough reasons yet to believe that conclusion. Right, right. So lead us through, lead us through like an argument that uses a couple of the different, you know, the couple of the different equations that we might be able to do and then see, see where, where, you know, something that forces a conclusion that yeah. has a couple different steps. Yeah, yeah. And then we'll see, and actually try to make it, try to make it something that's like, 
pretty reasonable if yeah, you yeah, can. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. So that I can like, so I can try and go in and see where, see where the weak points of that are or right. see whether yeah, yeah, it's just yeah. like. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I got to do this off the top of my head. Eh? Yeah, yeah, oh, for, sure. Right. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. For sure. For <laughs> sure. Um, so let me start by just saying, okay, so you were talking about and, uh, and we've, you've also talked about if then. Yeah. Um, and or is usually one of the other big I'm ones. Not sure I understand. That's Siri. She yeah. doesn't understand. Yeah, she doesn't understand symbolic <laughs> logic. logic. No. Uh, this is actually, Siri does this in class to me too. <laughs> <laughs> the students love it. <laughs> I'm like, got it. We don't understand. <laughs> we're just like Siri. I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll try again. I'll explain it again. <laughs> it's like the techno gods. That's right. Coming to Siri. Coming to Siri. Um, and uh, so those are probably the big three that show up uh-huh. in English that where we reason. So, you know, um, Look, either well, you do some World Cup stuff. Either mm-hmm. he's offside or he's not. Yeah. Right. Uh, he's um, closer to the end line than the last defender. Um, the ball got played. If the ball gets played when he's um, closer to the end line than the second to last defender, uh, then he's offside. Uh, if he's offside, the referee has to give him a uh, has to raise his flag. Um, and then I tell you something like, oh, by the way, he was closer to the ball than the second to last defender when the ball was played. Mm-hmm. And I give you all that data and you might go, oh, yeah, he's offside. Right. And then I might say, okay, well, he's only offside if the referee declares him to be offside. Right. And if the referee does not declare him to be offside, then he's not actually offside because what actually declares offside is a decision by the referee, referee. not actually the position of the player. Right. So, um, now we go, um, was he, I was just trying to argue he was offside. Yeah. Right. So then there was a second part. Uh, if he's offside, the referee ought to indicate this uh-huh. via flag up. Right. And then once that happens, the center referee ought to blow his whistle and penalize the person for being offside. Right. My suspicion is you're going, oh, was he penalized for offside? Uh-huh. That can only happen by the referee doing something. Right. But he can be offside even if everybody misses it. After all, this is what we've got VAR for now to try <laughs> and see, right. catch it when all three referees miss the offside car and and i suppose i if i was going to be obstinate i could say actually the subjective decision of the referee is what determines offsidedness it is not actually the objective reality of whether he was forward or not but it's the observation and interpretation of the referee that actually determines offside right Period. And there is no objective reality. There's only the subjective reality that creates offsidedness. And now we're doing lo- doing philosophy. Yeah. And we're outside of the realm of logic. Yeah. Right. Logic was interested in the relation between the pieces. Right, right, right. Now we need to do some philosophy to go, okay, what exactly do we mean by offside? Uh-huh. And, uh, and you could take the route of trying to deny... <laughs> All of objective reality in this case, I suspect. Since <laughs> yeah. if soon, I don't see how you would just go, oh, we're going to deny objective reality in the case of offside, but keep it elsewhere. 
right? So you have to basically challenge local realism, which right. is actually somewhat being challenged in general in quantum physics right, right now. Right, right. So basically, the, the observer actually creates the observer creates the reality. Right. But then also, you could argue, I could argue against myself, if other people saw him offside, then there was another observer. observer right. And so that creates a collective reality, if not an objective reality. Right. Though, I mean, one of the things about uh, one reason some philosophers try to avoid um, issues of observers being the determiners is that this causes an issue for error. Mm. Right? We tend to think the referees can get it wrong. Mm. Lots of people think referees get it wrong. <laughs> um, but, and we think we have a way of checking to mm -hmm. see whether they got it right or wrong. And the checking, sure, it's going to be done by some other observers, but at some point we've got to think, oh, wait, we checked, we used these tools with whatever they were, whether it's the VAR, whether it's cameras. I love it when uh, sometimes I get people who send me videos of games <laughs> I've done and, and I'm like, yeah. Good people don't know you're a soccer referee. Yeah. As well. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, um, and I'm like, yeah, this doesn't help me at all <laughs> because it's taken from an angle that doesn't show what needs to be shown mm. to determine whether was it in fact offside or not offside. If, as long as we think there's a way of checking for error, as soon as you let that in, you've got to accept some sort of realism. Yeah. And, and let it, let's be clear. I'm arguing something I don't believe. Right. right? I'm just, I'm just doing, I'm just <laughs> doing philosophers do this all the time. <laughs> I absolutely believe that. And, and actually, if we were going to get into it and wanted to explore this in a more serious way, I think that there is a collective consensus reality obs observer effect that creates a, an objective reality, but it's, in my actual belief, there's ways in which certain things can be slightly, slightly adjusted depending on the field of field of observation and belief, just as in a single experiment with the slit, if yeah, something's yeah. observing a particle or a wave, right. that individual can adjust that very, very small bit of reality based on a single person's of no, observation of it. Right. And I think there's a collective observation of reality that creates a collective consensus reality. But in certain situations, and I believe this because I felt that I've seen things happen that would normally be described as magical right. and not possible. But in the field of belief right. that was created, certain things are happening that in the moment, because we all believe that it's possible, it's like, oh, that happened. That's normal. This, this, you know, table was moving on its own accord and that felt normal. And then a few hours later, and of course there's usually some psychedelic medicine involved. involved yeah. yeah. <laughs> and a few hours later, we're like, did that fucking table just moving on its, was it pulsing with right. the, and, and we're like, fuck it was, what the fuck? Yeah. You know, right. and we're shocked. Right. But in that moment, there was such a strong, there was a different altering of the field of belief that just allowed just a subtle shift in right. what was possible in that moment. So if we're actually speaking the truth, right. that's my, that's what I actually believe. Right. Right. And I mean, what's possible? I mean, um, we, we, we perceive we, everything we analyze about the world is based on our perceptions of it. We've got to do some processing. It's not like we have sort of this immediate direct access to reality. Right. It's always interpreted. And 
I mean, when I'm teaching skepticism sometimes, right? These views that you can't know anything mm-hmm. and there are ways philosophers, it's easy to come up with ways to make people doubt everything in some sense, right? Oh, you're trapped in the matrix or brain in a vat, brain in a vat, or who is the look, person who talked about brain in the vat? Putnam did brain in a vat stuff and yeah. Descartes doing the evil demon who is whose sole job is to deceive you to make sure that <laughs> everything you think is wrong. And, um, it's really hard to get out of, of those situations. And, but I think it's, and, and, and honestly, like the, the interesting thing about the evil demon who's doing every job to create an entire reality just to deceive you and trick you. I've actually seen people I know get stuck in that place in the psychedelic medicine journeys. And again, right. we haven't spoken for quite a while, but since I was 18, that's been a part of my path mm-hmm. going to the sacred yeah. medicines around yeah. the world. And, and I've actually seen people get stuck in this, in this place where they believe that there is a, you know, malevolent, omnipotent deity that's yep. just fucking with them entirely right. and infinitely. And everything is fake and it's just there to fuck with them. And even I've come in and be like, Hey man, you all right? And then, and then the, in their mind, they're like, of course he would say that. Yeah, right. You know, you won't well, fool me. Right, 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 right. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, part of the danger here is once you get into what you might call these sort of these deep skeptical hypotheses, if, if you take them seriously, I don't think there is a rational way out. Yeah. Right. You just, yeah. at some point you just got to go, okay, not going there. Yeah. I, yeah, I, yeah. I've, I've got to at least <laughs> accept to some degree that um, hey, this table is real, even yeah. if, okay, maybe sometimes it can move on itself. Yeah. I mean, uh, Descartes did his little thing about, you know, perception and, and sticking a stick into the water and it bending. Mm. And part of me is like, oh, but I prove, prove that it actually isn't bent when it's in the water. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah. what are you going to do? You're going to take another observation. You're going to go, well, look, we could take a picture of it underwater. And you could see that it wasn't bent. Uh-huh. I was like, well, then wait, when you're looking at it that way, that just tells me, oh, now it looks like the thing above it is bent, right? Because yeah. <laughs> you're taking it from this perspective. Uh-huh. And I was like, any ob- observation you make, we could always say, no, that you're actually observing the way it actually is. And you just think that yeah. it's staying still. It's actually bending. How, how would you go about actually proving it in a way that isn't always relativizing to some system of observation? Again, once you get sucked down that rabbit hole, yeah. you're just like, okay, uh, I, I could probably never stop. I better get out now before my brain explodes or something and just yeah. go. Wasn't there a story, and I, and I don't remember if it was... Uh... It was you who told the story in the, cause I had, you know, a few, a few philosophy professors. Who else was a, a contemporary around that time that I might've taken classes uh, with? Gary Shapiro, uh-huh. uh, Jim Hall. Yeah. Dr. Dom- Hall. Dr. Hall probably. Dr. Hall was, Dr. Hall was probably, I took yeah. the most classes other than you. All right. But anyways, there was a discussion about somebody who was presenting this skeptic kind of philosophy right. and they were having a debate and this used to happen. Yeah. Philosophers would get together yeah, and have, have debates about yeah. random <laughs> things that, right. that just were pure philosophy, like yeah. philosophy is an art. And I do want to double click on that a little bit later, but there was an argument between a skeptic and someone who believed in basically reality. Right. And the, the story that I recall is that the guy reached over and slapped him right. and yeah. said, was that, well, was that real? real? Right, <laughs> right, right. Or, and there are variations on this, right? I mean, G. Moore is famous for at one point saying, here's a hand, here's another hand. 
And once I've given, once you accept that, we're off and running, right? The skeptical yeah. hypothesis is done. Um, but the slap is sort of a more, here's, here's my hand. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, Don't tell me this is not a hand. hand. Right. Tell I mean, me after I mean, it strikes you, you in the face. That it's not a hand. I was like, well, yeah. yeah. But if I'm going to be consistent, I'm like, yeah, you're assuming I have a face. <laughs> you're assuming, you're assuming that there, that I actually felt pain or that, <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. you could just keep pushing, uh, this, I can accept that this is all an error. Yeah. Now Putnam, Hillary Putnam, where we were talking about brains and a fat, did have a sort of an interesting way of trying to get around this. He was like, well, look, let's think about how language works, how like the word hand uh, yeah. picks out this thing. Well, wait, if you're thinking it's a mistake that the word hand picks out this thing, right? That, um, that it could be that this really isn't a hand. It's some just holographic projection because I'm a brain in a vat. Mm. Then Putnam goes, well, then I think the word hand in your language isn't referring to that physical object, is referring to whatever the holographic projection thing is. And it's true, you have one of those. Yeah. yeah and so yeah. The, all the sentences turn out to come out true again because it turns out not because reality is the way we think it is, it's because our words are somehow picking out whatever it is that Right. we're using to so it just kind of backs it just backs, backs everything the problem, up but backs everything up and then uh so it, it turns out you still might be mistaken about what you think hands are like physical concrete objects right. it turns out there are no physical concrete objects other than perhaps the brain and the vat mm-hmm. um and <laughs> <laughs> however it's getting its it's it's reality um but all your words would then just refer to whatever that fictional reality is so like the matrix they're all like yeah those buildings that don't exist when you see new york right because yeah. they've been destroyed but when neo says oh we're going to go to the go to the empire state building for him the empire state building turns to re- refer to that holographic projection thing right. not some physical object and this is and this is where you know for me it's like if you back it up that far yeah who cares Right? Like, who cares? It still feels, and, and to me, like, gnosis is my epistemology. Like, what I feel in my body, I feel like knowledge to me is stored actually less in my brain and more in my body. It's like, what do I feel? And if this hologram in this holographic universe is so real that I feel it and I can feel love and I can feel an orgasm and I can right. taste food and this coffee is warm and feels like a hug going down my throat, like, all good. Well, and it works for all, all those, lo- like love, pain, hurt, all of those things, the words are going to refer to whatever it is sure. that's in the simulation. So that, fuck it. So right. What's, what's, <laughs> what are you but, worried about? Yeah, right. So that's one way to try and escape the, the skeptical hypothesis, yeah. just to say, yeah, we may be wrong about their nature in one sense, but it's still going to, all those words are still going to refer to the things that I'm going to keep pretending are solid objects that hurt if I hit it really hard yeah. and right. Uh, ecstasy when I do this thing, yep. pain when I do that thing, um, mild discomfort when I do this other thing. Yeah. I have this, uh, I have an interesting, uh, thing that's very recent. And again, this is the third time I've mentioned it already, but you know, psychedelic medicine is a part of my path yeah. and the combination of actually two legal medicines in most places, uh, ketamine and cannabis is probably 
now my most consistent journey and I do it in a very kind of intentional way and I drop into this space with those two medicines that I'm prescribed for. And so I was recently in there and I've been somehow, interestingly, connecting with the archetypes of Olympian gods. Perhaps my old classical roots are are giving me the bias and proclivity to want to go there, even though I haven't really done that for a long time. It's been the Hindu, you know, the Hindu deities. It's been the classical like Yeshua and Mother Mm -hmm. Mary. And it's been a lot of other pantheons, you could say. But whatever it is, for whatever reason, it's been on the Hellenic, you know, pantheon recently. And I had a vision of Athena. Right. Uh, Athena is the goddess of wisdom. Right. And it was curious to me that the goddess of wisdom was wearing armor and was like a warrior. Right. And what I actually saw is that wisdom was violent to ignorance and all deception, deceit, uh, distortion, delusion. It actually, when wisdom came, it destroyed that which was not that was which was not wisdom and the interesting thing was like well why is it then okay get the armor because it's it is it is actually violent right to all of those things i mentioned yeah and it's a woman because and this is of course my hypothesis but it's a woman because wisdom is actually held in the body it's actually like the greatest wisdom is held in the body it's held and a woman represents the body of both men and women, actually, it's the body, it's the womb, it's the, it's the, the, the skin, the touch, the heart, the pussy, the cock, the, mm-hmm. the whole, like that's, there's like, there's deep, deep wisdom that's actually held there. And it's actually the, the brain that is the most suspect <laughs> to being out of alignment <laughs> right, with wisdom yeah, yeah. where you the body it, actually yeah. knows. Yeah. All right. So there's, there's a lot in yeah, there, yeah. a lot in there. Um, let me start with, in some sense, philosophy is, is, is focused on wisdom. Mm-hmm. Um, some people say, think in terms of knowledge, but I really think we want to, knowledge is in many cases, the purview of the brain that you were saying. Is that right. That, but you can know lots of stuff and not be wise. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not even just, oh, you're not sort of street wise or like you're, you're intellectual and you, you, you're completely unknowledgeable in other areas and like no, no no you can just know lots and lots of stuff and just not be a wise person mm-hmm. um and the challenge of course is trying to figure out what does it take to be a wise person mm-hmm. and you talk about athena and armor uh we started by talking about logic and reasoning it turns out a lot of the metaphors in logic are because i said about those premises force that conclusion right there, there tend to be war metaphors. Like, you're, you're, you're an idiot if you believe these premises, but don't believe that conclusion, right? right. Or that, that somehow you're being irrational and um, you, you, you um, I'm, I'm trying to beat you in your argument. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to make you, you, know, you want to believe this and I'm trying to make you stop believing it because yeah. I think I have good reasons that'll force you to stop believing that. It's a contest. Uh, it's a contest, right? Who's, who's got the better argument? Um, and uh, one of the things that some argumentation theorists want to try and do is can, can we move away from those metaphors? We still want to have this property of premises forcing the mm-hmm. conclusion because it still constrains us. Like 
if you go around saying, I believe these premises, but I'm going to act upon this conclusion that's completely contrary to those premises, eventually we suspect the world is going to smack you down for it in some right. way. And we would prefer that the, and, these, these are what the possibilities are constrained. And I think a lot of people, without, without us getting on a, on a tangent, I think like one of these premises would be like, love is the only way to, you know, um, respond to hate or mm -hmm. respond to that. And then we could believe that premise, but then somebody attacks us and it's straight back to, right. to a different non-loving response. Right. 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 So right. it's right. like you're being, you're being logically inconsistent. Either right. you don't believe it or you have to allow that you're incapable of actually following it. So, yeah, but yeah. again, you, at least you get to think about what's actually happening in the right way. Right. And I mean, again, when we, we like philosophy, science fiction, all of these things, sometimes pushing these strange hypotheses. But part of what we're doing in some, is using logic to try and push these hypotheses to their conclusion. Like what, if you're going to be consistent with, um, you know, love conquers hate, somebody starts, uh, you, you can't respond with hate. Right. That if you're going to be self-consistent, yeah. you've got to come with a way um, to sort of say, well, and <laughs> you believe that here, let me hug you. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. And, yeah. and, uh, you're going to punch me. Okay, fine. Here's the other cheek. Right. right. Um, and, and that's sometimes extremely hard of course. for human beings. Of right? course. Because which means that, which means that, and then potentially it invites the changing of the premise. Right. You know, in, you would have to say, you'd have to qualify it in, most situations, the best response to hate is love. In right. some situations, self-preservation and the return of violence is necessary. Right. And then you actually have a consistent worldview right. that you can abide in. Right. And then you're still going to end up with, that's going to create a new border where yep. you're going to be like, okay, what about this case? Which side of the border does it fall on? How do I deal with yeah. that case? But And that's like the entire Talmud, by the way. Right. Which is where like old ancient Jews were right. like figuring out, well, what if, <laughs> right, right. what if, if this, this right. <laughs> very right, thing right. happened? Right. How much, had, like Ari Shafir and his special Jew talks about like, there's apparently if there's more than one sixtieth of your soup has ham. Right. You have to throw it away, but less than one sixty, just a little bit of ham. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. You can eat the soup. You, you can eat the soup. Yeah, yeah. Um, that that. So there's this problem in philosophy called the the vagueness problem is how to deal with something like, hey, what what? When is a person bald? How much hair does it have? To have? <laughs> or or when are you in the outback in Australia? Like, right. When you when you step put your foot here? Have you stopped? Have you, have you started being in the outback or not being? Right. Outback? And this strikes me as someone's like, how much ham is non-kosher, right? <laughs> right. And uh, it's like 160th strikes me. This is one solution to the vagueness problem is we're going to, we're going to come up with a nice sharp boundary. <laughs> yeah. But then how do you measure 160th of a <laughs> cauldron of soup? Like, right. Or we're going to start counting hairs <laughs> on your head. Go, yeah. yeah. You, you've got 145 <laughs> bald. You've got 146 <laughs> not bald. <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's a, there's, it's interesting that language actually, it forces us to condense reality in a right. certain way. It's always doing that. It has a condensive function to everything. Right. You know, like it, it, it actually is always a little bit untrue because of that, because it's reducing something that's actually in some ways ineffable, always 
because there's many different ways to look at it and there's right. different things. It could be a wave or particle again, right. you know, right. like it's the same, same concept, but it's condensing it to one consensus belief that actually right. makes it always a little bit false. Right. Well, and there's, there's a, there's a fairly standard view in philosophy that language, natural languages are almost, uh, I don't want to say exclusively or inherently, but a large portions of them are vague, right? They have an inherent vagueness in them such that, yeah, if it turns out, if you're looking for a literal connection between what you say and the truth, it's not going to be there. Mm-hmm. That's reserved to sort of like pure mathematics or pure logic, mm-hmm. right? Um, but this isn't to say, oh, let's get rid of truth, right? right? Exactly. Not at all. We don't want to do that. Uh, it's just that, oh, now you have to take more care in trying to get as precise as you can on what you mean. We can check. We can still test for things. But then it's still going to be someone could still with inventiveness come up with a situation like, well, Bald or not bald, yeah. person or not person, um, table or not table, right? I mean, the classic move with the table is, you know, I start, I start removing molecules. Mm. How many molecules does it take before the table's gone? <laughs> yeah. And but, are the, are the molecules table? Like at what point, at what point is it no longer table? Like right. how, how, if, how many pieces does it have to be? Like right. when you, when you. Take, pull it apart. Let's say you could immediately turn it into a puzzle. Right. Yeah, pull yeah. it apart just a little yeah. bit. Is it still a table or right, is yeah. all those right. things not right, right, table? Right, 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 exactly. So I start, I start, all I do is uh, like, you know, some of the um, uh, science fiction movies where, you know, the person sort of does their thing with their hand and sort of that you can sort of see all the parts of the table spread apart from yeah, each other. Yeah, exactly. Right. And you're like, okay, they're a centimeter apart. You're probably going, oh, it's still a table. It's just the parts are apart. <laughs> but, but now all the, I spread all the parts across the universe. Yeah. Everyone's going, oh, not a table. Some wood. Some wood pieces. <laughs> but now it's like, wait, you're telling me whether it's a table depends on how close the pieces are to each other? Uh, right, right, That's right. weird. <laughs> That's strange. But, yeah. I mean. <sighs> and this is the meta, and this is what I was talking about, the meta beauty of philosophy. And the meta beauty of philosophy is, allowing your mind to explore things in these ways that that allow you to look at it and and ultimately laugh because i think you arrive at certain paradoxes right where only the only actual response to the paradox is to is to kind of laugh about it right you know That's explore you. it and and then then just laugh that we're placed in an impossible situation and we just have to kind of laugh we have to kind of laugh um i mean but there is part of me I mean, I'm a logician. Yeah. I'm a philosopher. Yeah. I like consistency. I agree. And when I get to this point where, and I think there's a table here, and it's weird to me that that whether it's a table or not depends upon how many molecules are there and how they're exactly arranged or how far apart the pieces are, and that I don't have good answers to whether it's a table or not. Uh, and one solution is to sort of take a, quasi-realist view towards things and not try to get so hung up on objective reality. But in the nagging part of another part of my head going, but I'm I'm consistent. I I treat the world as if it's filled with objects all the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Am I somehow just going, oh, philosophy has made me question this. Um, But I got to still balance. I'm still a person in the world. 
but I'm also a philosopher. So mm-hmm. if I'm going to be consistent, I should try and be consistent across both realms and not just like Hume said at one point, okay, well, we're going to do all this thought and now let's go have a beer. Right, 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 right. <laughs> Forget about all that. Let's just go have a beer. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's like, no, but now I could just raise the problem with the beer if I, I wanted to. That would drive you mad. And that would drive me mad, right? And so there's the thing. So how right. do I deal with that situation where it's not, it looks like there's a paradox or I'm forced into inconsistency. I don't see any way to get out of this consistency, inconsistency. What are my options? I think laughter, madness, um, mm-hmm. despair. Yeah. And, and that, and that to me is I'm very comfortable with paradox and laughter. I'm right. very comfortable with this is table and not table. Right. And I accept both and I laugh and it just depends on the perspective and the dimensional reality that you're actually looking at in the current state. And actually we're, we're facing a, a problem of nominalizing this table and pretending that it's a noun when actually this table is a verb and it's tabling because it won't be a table forever. No matter if nobody fucking touches it, eventually this will not be a table. It will return to particles. And so this, this is just something that is tabling at this moment from my, from my perspective. And so that's, what's allowed me to kind of be comfortable in a functional way with this and actually enjoy, enjoy the moments of paradox. Well, um, one of my, uh, colleagues, in fact, um, he would probably agree with you in the sense of, um, in Western philosophy, especially there's this tendency to think of objects doing stuff, right? But the objects are somehow primary, mm-hmm. like that, that we, we have the objects and then we attribute properties to them and, and actions to them. Um, but he, he's actually a philosopher of science, uh, Dr. Belkin. He was at UR for a while, and now he's, he's back in Israel. He, um, some of his work was sort of reversing that in the sense that the primary thing is the, the doings, and it's out of the doings you build the things. Mm-hmm. So there's a sense in which one interpretation of what he's doing, you would say there, there isn't a table here. There's a tabling. Yeah, as so long he's, de- as the t- he's as long denominalizing. As, as long it. as the tabling happens, <laughs> there'll be something that you call a table. Yeah. Um, but it's the happening that's the important piece, not the object. Right. Because the object turns out to be derivative of the happening. Yeah. Not, oh, the object exists and then there's a thing it does. Yeah. I now, like of course, that. the puzzle, of course, is can you imagine a universe in which there's a single object doing nothing. Ah, so I would say universe. So we have to clarify the word universe. Okay. First of all, so universe, universe to me means, I would say that's clearly no, because everything in, in the known universe that we call default universe yeah, yeah. is actually moving right in some right. way right so so let's clarify so yeah um philosophers use the word universe sometimes to talk about possibilities right and so we could imagine um um here's an easy possibility my first flight was was going to be delayed so i had to switch my flight yeah but if i hadn't noticed that in time uh i would have been stuck in dallas this morning because my i would have missed my connection mm-hmm. so we can imagine a universe in which Mm-hmm. I didn't notice it. Right. Yeah. And that's, 
and, and we can compare the two universes. And in the one universe, this conversation isn't happening right now because I'm still stuck in Dallas. In this universe, the actual one, it happens to be. So, and you can multiply that a whole bunch of times. And yep. There's a whole bunch of science fiction about like hopping universes. Yeah, going parallel multiverses. Multi-universes. And... Okay. And so what I'm asking is, now consider all of them. I'm asking, could you imagine one universe where there's just one object doing nothing in it. Yeah, and I think this is the this is the this is the unicity points. Yeah. And and I think this is a very interesting thing because there's one unicity point and these are places these are places that I've felt and again going back to wisdom in the body yeah, these yeah. Are places that I felt, you know, 5MeO DMT in particular can bring you to one flavor of a unicity point where right. it is the everything point. Right. All laughter, all tears, all ecstasy, all, you know, orgasms, all pain, all everything, all at once, all the color, all the light, all the sound, and there's everything there. But what I've noticed is, is either I can't go far enough because right. I'm yeah, still yeah, yeah. an observer, so I can't yeah. quite go all the way right. because there's still my observation of it. Right. And my observation of the everything actually makes there be some kind of movement, some kind of relativity right. between my yeah, observation yeah, yeah, yeah. of the everything. So the moment that there is awareness right. in the everything that doesn't actually fall on that premise. But I do believe that there's potentially on the other side, the void or the nothingness, right. where there is a, a dimensionality of just nothingness of, and no conscious awareness of right. the nothingness so right. it's impossible to experience it right by right. even the div even right. the div right. even divinity itself the right. divinity itself as soon as divinity says i am right it's no longer the nothingness because there's i amness and then i think the universe flows from that but i do believe that in the possibility of this completely unconscious void right of nothingness with no awareness of it right well and i mean i i asked you can you imagine a universe with an object that isn't moving because I was trying to push back on right. the, the, this make the motion primary and then the object because I wanted to say, hey, is it possible to have an object but no moving? But of course, I'm asking you to imagine it. So you're looking at it as if you're an outside observer. You're just like you're stepping outside all the universes and you're looking at each one mm -hmm. and trying to look in. <sighs> okay, so now it's tough because... You're right. I'm I'm looking at this universe. And mm. what does it mean to say there's an object in that universe that's not doing anything? Well, it's being observed <laughs> by yeah. me, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's um if if uh if we're sort of imagining me somehow looking at the universes outside, um, it's not doing any of the things that I normally think of as doing. We tend to think like moving, right? That's right, doings. Right, right. Um but there might be doings that are much more subtle than the things that we normally think of as doings. And so, Dr. Yadu, I'm not sure I can answer, <laughs> answer yeah. your question fairly. Yeah. Uh, but it's this back and forth where we keep trying to go through the possibilities mm -hmm. uh, to try and sort out what, what does force one thing, what doesn't force another thing. What, how can I sort of make these two positions that appear on the face of things to be inconsistent is there a way to make them consistent and this i mean the classic example of this is if a tree falls in the woods and no one is there to hear it does it make a sound right okay right and and i've i've explored that myself and i think i've finally you know come to a reasonable conclusion but i would i would like i would 
propose that to like, all right, well, let's, let's explore this. Right. So, I mean, uh, remember I said language in many cases is considered to be vague. Uh-huh. Here's my suspicion. We haven't fully decided what we mean by sound. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and in most cases, we don't need to fully decide what counts as a sound, right? But it could mean if, if a sound is something that is heard by a, a hearer, right? yeah. that's what it takes for something to be a sound. It requires the hearing. Right. Then the answer to your question has a straightforward answer. A tree that falls in a forest with no one around to hear it does not make a sound. <laughs> yeah. Right? Because uh-huh. that's how we've decided to understand sound. If sound is uh, just the sort of vibrations through the air um, that may or may not get received by anything that can interpret them, right? our suspicion is tree falls in a forest, it's going to make those vibrations, yep. makes a sound. Yep. And now the question becomes, is there a good reason to pick one of those two things? Maybe there are other options for what we mean by sound. But once we've decided, notice the answer to the question becomes easy. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And, and, and so that's, I think that's the beauty of it is like with, with an understanding of this level of philosophy, you can answer some of these questions that people go, ah, oh, unanswerable. And I'm like, actually, no, I think there's per- a perfectly good answer. And that's exactly it. The unanswerable question might be, do we have a good reason to decide one way or the other? Right. Right, right, right. Or we now have to go, okay, that, <laughs> what, what are the consequences of holding this uh-huh. to be the meaning of sound? What are the consequences of this being the meaning of sound? And of course, and, or can you hold both? Or can you somehow hold both, right? Can you sort of say, well, uh, and there are contextual versions of it, right? When there are two words, both of which look and spell the same, sound, one of them yeah. means that, the other one means that, and now we have to figure out from context which one you meant. Yeah. And <laughs> so, and you can say, hey, there are certain cases where it does have, the tree does do both. Yeah. When I'm actually there in the forest, avoiding getting crushed by the tree, uh-huh. I go, it made the vibrations. I heard them. <laughs> we got both. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, let's try another question then. And I haven't actually solved this question. Okay. What came first, the chicken or the the egg? egg? (laughs) This one's tough. This one's tough, right? Um, Yeah. My suspicion is uh, (laughs) that, again, um, we're we're not going to be clear on what we mean by egg. Yeah. That's, that has to be it, right? Um, um, I also suspect we're going to, have some unclarity on what counts as a chicken, but, um, <laughs> um, but I suspect there's even more trouble on figuring out what counts as an egg. Um, yeah. Um, because I mean, biologically, right. We think of even to create eggs, a lot of biological work has to go on before that. And so, I mean, is, you know, the initial cells, do those count what as is chickens? The, what, is the, what is the precursor of a chicken if you keep going back and back and back? I, I mean, I'm trying to imagine this kind of amorphous beast that's almost laying an egg. Well, like, I mean, where, where, where's, well, like the, okay. where's the borderline so, so, so chicken? Right, right, where's the borderline chicken? Well, I mean, and this was, this was, this was some of the original arguments against things like evolution was like 
where where's a borderline I? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And because you expect if some of the early arguments against evolution were you would expect that if uh, eyes are sort of these evolved things that you would be able to see this mm-hmm. and you'd see, oh, here's something that has something that's not quite an eye. And I think it's more complicated than that. But you are going to be going back and saying, well, you have something that does some sensitivity to light. And right. now it's getting, you found things that had better sensitivity to light in certain frequencies survive better than those that didn't. Mm-hmm. And so you're going to do those count as eyes? Mm. I don't know. I think the, when, eyes when, thing, when, the eyes thing for me is easier than the primordial chicken. Well, but I, I can't you can imagine you, the primordial you can, chicken. primordial chicken in the sense is, okay, so you have something that is chicken-like. I mean, how... What fun? is that thing? Well, I mean, it's, it, we might think it was some kind of bird. And then before that, it may have been... What is a bird? What is right, a right, primordial bird? bird? Right. Well, exactly. I mean, if you think you're going to push this back all the way to single-celled organisms... Yeah, but you can't be that far, right? Right. It, well, but that's the thing. Is, I mean, you, you start doing these single-celled organisms that get more complex, yeah. and they're going to create things. Now, like, for any... And they're going to get more and more complex. Try, try cutting the line anywhere. Why don't we have, I mean, it is, it is, and it's not like I'm an evolution denier. Of course not. not. Yeah. Right. Uh, however, it, you would imagine that you'd have like fossilization of very strange, almost bird, like, like things that might show up in some, in some particular way. Right. Right. Well, we do. So we have some fossils that are, you're like. Reptile bird, reptile bird. Yeah, uh, yeah. That that, really, that 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 crossover is very close. Well, so it's like pretty close. So, um, um, I mean, there's some theories where velociraptors right have feathers. Uh-huh. So, um, um, so I, I think I think the issue is, I mean, that actually makes them more terrifying. <laughs> Uh, to me, actually, if a velociraptor had fucking feathers, yeah, I'd be right. like, God damn, that's fucking scary. If it could also fly and <laughs> run really fast and, yeah, okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, part of my point is uh, about, I mean, if you, you get this huge chain of changes, start from, uh, like, some single cell organism and... Um, go all the way up to modern day chickens, right? If you could trace all the things. But part of it is you're back into a vagueness problem. Is where, where do I cut the line and say this thing before was like a pre-chicken and this thing over here is right. chicken? Right. Where, where's, where's that line? I mean, in some sense, you get a similar sort of problem with just human beings, right? We tend to think sperm, egg, that's how it starts. And, and you get development all the way through. And it's like, we get a huge debate, especially in this country, about where, mm. where's the line for person, not person there, if you're going to do it in pure biological terms, right? And a lot of sweat and blood and tears have gone into uh, arguing back and forth about that yeah. particular line. I'm like, and yeah, and I, and I guess, again, this points to where I, where I source wisdom is right. like, do I feel like that's a chicken? Right. Does it feel like a chicken? Right. Me? You know, and, and yeah, this yeah, is yeah. like anthroontologically, I right. guess, like in my own body, do yeah, I know yeah. it is real? Right. And like, is this, 
I feel it. And that's right. what, that's Athena. That's yeah. Athena medicine right. to me. It's yeah. like, it's like with the wisdom of knowing. All right. So, but can you ever feel wrong? Like, do you think your feeling could get? I think the interpretations of my feelings could be wrong. Uh, all right. So I need more detail here. Um, like you, you're saying you, you have this feeling that. Okay. So let's say I feel like, I feel like, you know, let's use a real example. Yeah. Yeah. I was in a polyamorous relationship for mm. a while before meeting my wife and, yeah. you know, changing the path and, and being in a more traditional monogamous relationship. Um, in this, in this polyamorous era, I would feel like my partner didn't love me anymore. Okay. But, and the feeling was that love was removed. She didn't love me. She didn't care about me. All of these horrible negative feelings. Right. And that's what my interpretation of the feelings. Now, the feelings were horrible. Now, right. my interpretations were that she actually didn't love me. And that was the conclusion that I drew True, from, from, my, from what you're feeling. From what right, I was right, right. feeling. Yeah, yeah. But my feeling was actually caused by my own insecurities. Right, okay. And so the insecurities was actually the cause. So my attribution to the cause of the feelings was false. Right. However, the feelings were accurately depicting my insecurity. Right. Yeah, yeah. So... So, and that, this is the clarity I wanted, right? Is right. I'm trying to get pinpoint what the feeling was. I mean, I'm not denying you had the feelings. Right. Uh, in fact, it's really hard for me to challenge that you're having the feelings. What I'm worried about is what we take the feelings to be indicative of. Mm -hmm. And you were interpreting the feelings as being indicative of something happening out there in the world mm -hmm. in another person when in fact it turned out they were indicative of something going on inside your own body that reflected something else about yeah. the world namely your own security about your relationship to the world yeah all right awesome i don't think we disagree about anything mm -hmm. um but now you need to be able to how do you distinguish between the case where your feeling of insecurity, or your feelings of not being loved are in fact being caused by the not being loved out in the world or being caused by yeah. the, your own self-insecurity, mm. right? That's, that's what I need to be able to distinguish because I can't, I, I grant you could have the exact same feeling in both cases. Right. And if all I've got access to is the feeling and I know there are these two possible explanations for the feeling. I can't suddenly just jump one way or the other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is where it gets really difficult. And right. This is where actually the feelings obscure your actually ability to use logic and look at all of the different premises. So in this, in this case, right. you know, then what I will try to do is I'll lay out a possibility, all the possibilities right. that I'm possibly aware of. Yeah. And I think this is where you have to have... Uh, a little bit of that skeptical mindset. Right. Like, even if you feel something to be true, you have to be aware of all of the if-then possibilities, all of these premises that could be true, that could be possibly contributing to this. Right. And then, I guess, so really, it is a marriage. It's a marriage of what the logical faculties are able to do, the possibilities, the probabilities, right. and your own sense and intuition, and also the bias that might come with your right. sense and intuition. There's a whole host of biases right. that come, the self-serving bias, the right. you know sunk cost bias, bias all these right. fucking things that, yeah, yeah, that yeah. bias your feelings and your interpretations. Right. And you have to have like the maximum awareness for all of that and the willingness 
to also be like, ha, I was wrong. Right. You know, no worries. I bet. I'm sorry. Right. You know, and, like, and that I think I bet I think is the hardest part. Right. Is that willingness to step back and A, admit you're wrong. But B, I think, I mean, here's another one. Confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. Right. Humans are really bad at um, stopping and expanding the mental energy to test their own hypotheses. Yeah. Because we are really good at detecting patterns and telling stories about the patterns as explanations. I suspect this has awesome survival value Mm. um, in many circumstances. But it turns out that in the sort of more modern age, when you have lots of stuff coming at you, information coming at you, and you don't need to go into fight or flight mode mm-hmm. <laughs> nearly as much, mm-hmm. that now it actually is, you've got the time to expend the mental resources to test your hypotheses rather than just go, oh, hey, this confirms my hypothesis. Awesome. I'm going to keep believing my hypothesis. This confirms my hypothesis. Awesome. I'm going to keep believing my hypothesis. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's so, it's so tough because all of these survive, these, a lot of these biases are or heuristics yeah. are designed with a with a biological evolutionary biology purpose right and that's so, my hypothesis anyway well, I, I need i want to go and test it right yeah, i mean if i'm going to be a good i'm like i've got this great story that explains why human beings aren't so good at probability and explains why human beings are prone to confirmation bias i've got this hypothesis this story it seems to fit the data okay what should i do as a good researcher how do I test it? How do I come up with a way of checking whether that is the explanation for why human beings seem to fall prey very quickly to confirmation bias? Type? Yeah. I mean, it, it, you imagine that like if you're in this jungle world and a particular type of animal hurts you, yeah. then and then it hurts you or an, an insect, yeah. for example, like an ant. Yeah. You know, I suppose there's some ants that bite and some ants that don't. and you know, you get, have a couple ant bites and then you discover a new type of ant that actually doesn't bite. Yeah. And it's on your arm. And yeah. And you've yeah. experienced the ant bite. Yeah. You fucking slap yeah, it. That's right. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Like you, and that's actually helpful. Right. Even though you may be wrong about that ant, yeah. but to wait around. To, to wait it, around to check. <laughs> yeah. Right. It I mean, just doesn't, yeah. doesn't make sense. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. There's a, there's, a, there's a lot of thing about for survival value, you don't want to be testing your hypothesis. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, sometimes you're just like, no, it's time to run or <laughs> yeah. go or freeze or yeah. whatever. You this know. velociraptor has feathers. Maybe it's not going to eat me. me. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. Let's test. Uh, no. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and also I say it, it does take more cognitive energy to test hypotheses, to slow down and sort of think through things that are going to prove me to be wrong and to just go, oh, look, the evidence I keep seeing supports my view, so I'm going to keep believing my view. Now, of course, what gets worse uh, is if you then start to deliberately narrow your evidence gathering to the point where you're only willing to accept evidence that supports your view and you're not even willing to go look at evidence that might be contrary to your view. It seems to me that one of the problems is, is that we've wrapped our identity in the nominalization in the of being right, as if right is a 
is a place that we are that we're at and we're permanently at yeah rather than putting placing our identity as being the one on the quest to more truth or correctness right and so if you find that you're not correct about something then your identity is i am the one and this is where my value proposition of self is wrapped up. I am the one that will correct my incorrectness right. and continue upon my evolutionary path of greater truth and correctness. Right. And if people could just shift their identity complex to valuing being on the process, right. the path, path of truth, right. rather than arriving at the truth, being having already arrived at it, right. it would change everything. Everybody's minds would be way more open. Right. I mean... Uh... But again, I suspect we're going to come back to one of these double-edged swords because even in philosophy, right, we tend to go, okay, I, I accept this as my premise. And then I'm trying to figure out how to move on from there. Yeah. But that means I've got to accept some things as premises. I've got to take them as true. I've got to take them as starting points to move forward. Sure. Of course, because the skeptical problem is that if I keep questioning all of my premises all the way back, there lies madness, there lies despair, mm -hmm. right? Because I just don't have any starting point to move forward. Yeah. But so even if, uh, even if I'm going to be involved in a process, at, at some point I need to, as part of that process, I've got to accept at least for right now, yeah, yeah. this is totally. the raft I'm totally. on. Totally. <laughs> These are the pieces I'm going to use. What, what can I get from there? How, and, and, but I have to be willing yep. to maybe jump rafts. Exactly. And get excited about the ability to jump rafts. So right. right today, and this podcast will release later. And so this podcast, you know, I'm referring to a point back in time. Yeah. Where right today, this Wednesday, I don't know, it's sometime in December. What's the date today, everybody? The 14th, December yeah. the 14th, podcast with Graham Hancock is being released. Graham, Graham Hancock, investigative journalist who's gone to many sacred sites around the world. Right. Some of which have been actually accurately dated to around 9,600 BC, where right. megalithic sites were, were created. Right. Now, there was a mainstream archaeological hypothesis that nobody built anything beyond, you know, a couple thousand years BC. Right, 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 right. And he's put together an immense amount of evidence to show right. things to the contrary, and more and more is coming. Now, archaeologists, and, and this, is, yeah. this is kind of a classic academic right. move where they've, they've believed this thing, they've wrote papers on this yep. thing, and they get, very actually vehemently angry <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> uh, that, that he's like showing this like here's this yeah. evidence here and they're it's not that they're not going like that's fucking interesting man uh, yeah let's look at this together yeah, yeah. let me bring my team out there and let's check this out they're yeah. like no fuck you yeah. you're a pseudoscientist yeah. you're you know you're a blah 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 hey. they go ad hominem attacks right. and they try to bury him plate tectonics was viewed as pseudoscience mm. right early in its early days and in fact uh, I can't remember the guy who put it forward. Uh, I can't remember his name, but even he was like, yeah, this is a great story. Uh, I, it sort of fits the evidence I have, but we would need a lot more work, but, but it, it would explain certain things. Yeah. And he says, yeah, but it doesn't meet scientific muster. He himself, but he kept at it. And now it is the mainstream view of how right. the stuff. So part of it is like, okay, yeah, it's good to have the skeptics to say, Wait, let's slow down. You, you've put this crazy story out here that contradicts a lot of what we have. Um, the, sometimes there is a good reason to be conservative sure. about our beliefs, right? To, to accumulate knowledge slowly and not sort of rush into, oh, but that would be so cool. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Okay, yeah, but it would be really cool. 
except it's false <laughs> and <laughs> it's dangerous yeah. and yeah. or whatever. Um, but if it's like we just got the new breakthrough about fusion, right, that uh, they've finally made a, um, a, a reaction where they got more energy out of the reaction than they put in. For the Whoa. search for the search for fusion power, that is awesome. That's a big deal. That is a huge deal. Not a whole lot. Still a lot of technological barriers to overcome, but that was one of the big first steps you need for viable fusion, right? So it's gonna be this slow process of working our way through. But part of that process, I think, has to be a willingness to go, what if I'm wrong? Mm-hmm. And that's tough. It's hard. Like mm-hmm. I teach people to reason, uh, try to reason more clearly. Uh, one of the things I would tell people is more, it, sometimes you're going to get this gut reaction. Like this mm-hmm. is what your body is telling you the answer is. And you know what? If it's a probability problem, slow down. <laughs> odds are your gut reaction has driven you to the wrong answer. And yeah. we can prove that it's the wrong answer. Sometimes that happens in logic too. Your gut reaction is that this is going to be the answer. And it's wrong. I mean, do you remember, did I do writing assignments? Do you remember doing mm-hmm. writing assignments in yeah. logic? So yeah, yeah. those puzzles, uh, a lot of students would be, like, they, they go with their gut reaction on, oh, this has got to be the answer. This is, this is what it feels like the answer is. And then I could just methodically lay out, no, this is why this counterintuitive answer. I think, you know, I haven't, I didn't think about it till you brought it up, but those are some of my, I loved those. Like I relished that. You know, I taught, I teach puzzle. a course now that's almost the whole uh, puzzles and paradoxes, which uh-huh. is almost doing all of those all the time. That's so, it's so, it's so fun for me to kind of like look at it in all of these different ways. And as people can probably see and feel like I'm enjoying this yeah. type of conversation. Right. And I think this is, this to me is philosophy. And then when people are like, and there's another way to do philosophy. Right. And, and the other way to do philosophy is just, it's basically historical biographies of other philosophers right. that you have to memorize. Right. And I think that is the absolute fucking wrong way to teach philosophy. Right. Like the right way is to get you thinking like a philosopher. Right. Not like a historian that understand, understands historical philosophy. I'm right. actually really bad as a historical philosopher. Right. right. Even though we had, we had, we did some of that and yeah, I, yeah. we did a little yeah, Spinoza yeah. and Descartes yeah. and we did all that. And, and I actually liked learning about their theories and things. Right. But I was always super eager to say, okay, now let me try, let me try it for myself. Right. Let me and get we, in and there you, and do and it. You've got to try it. But like anything, I've got to give you a base to work from. Yeah, totally. And so I've, I, it's not as if Spinoza wasn't excited about what he was writing or Leibniz or Hume. They, They wrote it down. They took the time to work through it, to plow through it, to spend tremendous amounts of mental energy trying to say this, I'm trying to solve the problem of what substance is or Mm -hmm. yet here are the consequences of if we take this definition of Aristotelian substance, what's the world like? Spinoza is one unified thing that all what you call mind and body are just different aspects of the same thing. Or your Leibniz, you start with a tiny bit of a difference in your definition of substance based on Aristotle and ah, the universe, it's composed of infinite uh, substances that are independent of each other, don't causally interact, but somehow mirror each other perfectly. Mm. One thing, infinite things, all starting from (laughs) trying to parse out the logic consequences of substance. Okay, awesome. But 
we still need to have this foundation of what these guys said to move forward. But I can't just do philosophy in the sense of regurgitating what they said. Yeah, it has, to, go, it has to be a little bit of both. It's got to be a both. How do I do this balancing act between giving you enough knowledge so that, and the hope is, right, that philosophers have made loads of mistakes over the thousands of years we've been of doing course. it. Do you want to have to revamp all of their mistakes in their <laughs> search for enlightenment? Yeah. Or can we sort of shortcut some of that yeah. by saying, okay, let's let's start with some things that these are the foundations. Can we move from forward from here so that we can keep making that incremental I mean, progress? Up? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, I, and I, I fully agree. And it's not just philosophy. Right. It's also the great spiritual traditions, right. mystical traditions. You know, like I'm actually currently in active study with uh, Mahayana Buddhist mm -hmm. and a Kabbalist as right. well. And as I go deeper into their understanding, more things are illuminating for me and I'm able to make derivative, derivative conclusions based on certain premises that I've now accepted based right. on what they've worked out over their thousands of years. And so that to me, I guess is really exciting. So I guess the, the, my only comment on the educational process is, and this wasn't the way it was in university of Richmond and with you and that's one of the reasons why I love philosophy, but I'm trying to just pause it. Like, how do you not love philosophy? <laughs> like, like, that's what I think. Like, there's a lot of people who are like, I fucking hated philosophy. Yeah, oh, yeah. I'm like, like, what do you mean? How right. do you, it's so, it's like, how do you not love solving the greatest puzzles that can be solved? And I think the reason why is sometimes in, in, if a professor's just having you memorize what other people said, yeah. but not giving you the opportunity to say, okay, here's some of the ways they thought about it. But also now here's a problem for you that's practical, that's right. real, right. that you got to figure out, use some of your own methods. I think in the blend of both, it's like radically exciting. And also, right. look, you know, a lot of people would say philosophy, classics, double major. Yeah. Good luck. Good luck with your <laughs> career out there. Well, fuck <laughs> you. Right. Yeah. I fucking killed right, it. That's right. <laughs> yeah, you know, so, so, I mean, I would do things for UR for admissions and where they're saying, um, you know, I would get asked questions. What, what, what can my child do with a philosophy degree? Anything they damn well please. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. You're teaching someone how to think, how to solve problems. What? Tell me something that doesn't require thinking and solving problems. Thinking, solving problems, right? When it comes down to it, philosophy may be sort of an extreme version that we may end up talking about stuff that on the face of it is crazy. Right, like, like brains and vats. Brains and vats and whether this table is real or whether, um, you know, whatever you want to do, what would happen? How could you distinguish between these two situations? I'm like, I would never be in that situation. I'm not asking. I understand that. How would you distinguish between you being in this right. distinguish and that situation? And, but a lot of it just requires uh, the willingness to chat, to take, uh, to be slow, methodical, take your time, Try and open your mind to various possibilities. See what the logical consequences of various positions are. Admit when, hey, this would be a really cool way to solve that problem. Oh, it's not going to work. Mm -hmm. And go, okay, put that as attempted solution aside. Let's try a different solution. Or, um, you know, oh, I want to solve the personal identity problem this way. Hey, okay, you can solve it that way. But I'm going to point out it has these consequences. Mm -hmm. And if it, if it has these consequences, are you willing to accept those consequences? Yes or no? If you say yes, oh, this view 
that those consequences have these further consequences. Mm -hmm. Are you willing to accept those? Yes, no. And if you finally get to one where like, no, I'm not willing to accept those consequences, then you either have to say, okay, can I show you that those consequences don't really follow? Yeah. Because I want to hold on to my view. Or I go, those consequences are bad enough. Let me see how I modify my view to avoid those consequences. Yeah. And that just takes a lot of work, effort, self-reflection. I mean, there are, I hate being wrong. Mm. I hate it. And there are times where I just have to be like, suck it up. <laughs> suck yeah, it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Admit it. Move on. How, yeah. how can I grow from For being sure. wrong? For sure. And you can, get, you can get actually, and it is possible to be both. Like, because even, even in this position, I had an initial premise about wisdom in the body and you challenged the premise and then right. I, I evolved my premise right. to go, oh yeah, actually it can't, there are, are often times where the body is completely misleading. Right. And so I'd have to either clarify my understanding of the body or clarify the, the premise under which the body actually contains the wisdom and, right. and like lots of things have to be clarified and to do that requires the mind often, you know, to be able to sort right. that out or some level of consciousness, even then, where do you d divide the mind from the all? From mind or where, do, how do I even divide That's your mind from fucking, your body? That's right? a big what? fucking problem. And, yeah, I, right? and I tried to write a book called Master Your Mind and eventually abandoned it three times because I could not actually distinguish the place where the mind ends and the body starts and the universe collective ends and starts and the mind, everything was always inextricable fundamentally. Right. And so I ran into a philosophical problem where I just had to basically scrap the book and I just recently canceled my contract. They, you know, I got a yeah. good, you know, a good advance on a book and I was like, I just, I cannot yeah. do it. I've yeah. tried, I've evolved yeah. this many ways and I could do something, but it's not anything like the book that you bought. Bought, yeah. Dear Harper yeah, Collins and my, my beloved editor, Karen. Yeah. I'm like, I'm so, I'm really sorry. Yeah. I know, you know, you know how hard I tried in this. Yeah. Here's your money back. Yeah. And I'll come back to you with something that I can actually do. And that was tough, yeah. especially right. throwing away 50, 60,000 no. words yeah. Yeah, where yeah. I thought I could get there. <laughs> yeah, right. I was like, fuck. That's right. <laughs> fuck. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I, I published papers and then I've got all these reams of stuff that used to be versions of what those papers were. And there are times where I think I've got it and like almost got a complete play for it. And I'm like, it's <laughs> not going to work. <laughs> yeah. And I've got to just, put that paper aside and be like, yeah, that's, that's not going to work. But the process, the process is you learn something in the process. Right. I learned so much more about the mind in my failed attempts. Right. Absolutely. Than, you know, and so, and that will actually inform further my own life and right. also, you know, further books and further posts, whatever, whatever podcasts, all these things that come across right. from it. So there's the gratitude that ultimately comes on the other side of actually going and doing the work and like the labor of the thing is its own reward and that you actually come to some greater understanding. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the, being able to overcome the fear of failure is, uh, I think, one of the greatest virtues you can have for progressing, self-progress. Yeah. I mean, and I, I am not at all saying I have succeeded in this. Yeah. Like there are times where I, know, I, I can almost uh, feel myself Part of me is intellectually saying, stop, just stop. And I, I, but the other part is saying, no, it'll work. It'll work. It'll work. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and sometimes I just 
won't even see yet that it really won't work. Even yeah. if part of me is trying to say it won't. Of course. And, and, <laughs> and, and even on self-reflection, I'm like, you, you, you teach people to try and avoid this trap. And yet you still fall <laughs> into here it. I am. Here I am. <laughs> here I am. Uh, All right. I have something. So one of the classes that you teach is the philosophy of science fiction. Correct. Yeah. All right. I was given a story. Yeah. And uh, I was given a story by, and this is, I don't need to go into the whole context of the story. I'm just going to give you the story. Yeah. And the story is that there's a race of beings called the Arcturians. Okay. All right. This race of star beings called the Arcturians are the ancestors of humans. Okay. And that the Arcturians are able to move back through time. Okay. And support humans. Okay in the process of becoming Arcturians okay, and not yeah. destroying themselves. Okay. So this really fucks me up. <laughs> <laughs> this, 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 this really uh, fucks me up yeah, because yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't understand this time travel, this time travel. So you're obviously presuming that the Arcturians have mastered the ability to tra- navigate time. Travel in time, yeah. I can accept that. But then if it is necessary for them to help humans to actually get to yeah. the point where yeah. they can become Arcturians yeah. and then come back and help humans. How does that work? Because the first time, how, where was the first time? First time? What? Where humans evolved enough to become Arcturians <laughs> that could come back and help. Yeah, okay. Right? Yeah. So you see what I'm, you see yeah, what I'm absolutely. saying? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, so I teach metaphysics and science fiction uh-huh. and one of the big sections on it, and two big sections. One is on personal identity. So like this is transporter, uh, type problems where, you know, uh, there's a Star Trek episode where Riker beams down to the planet and then there's a problem and he ends up splitting in two. One of him stays on the planet and then another version of him ends up on the Potemkin and goes off and becomes the Commander Riker who ends up on the Enterprise. And then they come back to that planet many, many years later and boom, there's another Riker. Mm. Right. So identity problems like that that you right. can get. That's one section. The other section is all on time travel. Mm-hmm. So it's exactly this sort of story. What you have is a uh, self-causing loop, yeah. right? That the Arcturians are somehow, uh, have traveled back in time to do something that generates the Arcturians. Yes. Right? Okay. Yes. So, and you say, well, wh- what happened first? Yeah. Okay. So here's a model of time travel. Changing the past is impossible. You can travel back into the past, but you can't change anything. Mm-hmm. So, on that respect, imagine what it's like when God looks at the universe. Beginning Big Bang, let's say. Then he sees galaxies developing, stars, da da da, da. He sees um, um, the arrival of a very advanced species in Earth's past mm. who do these things that generate, let's say, tweaks the conditions of initial earth so that evolution will go this way. And he keeps following this path and that goes all the way to the Arcturians developing time travel. And of course he sees them leave at that point. And then he sees the Arcturians continue on. That's the universe he sees. Mm -hmm. There is Mm -hmm. one and only one timeline. It never changes. That's the order he sees it in. Now, That, that universe, I think, is perfect. That story is now perfectly consistent. Right. But you have to accept there's a sense in which the Arcturians can't change anything about it. They are the cause of their own existence. Self, <laughs> right? I mean, here's the thing. Yeah. On, yeah, that yeah, view, yeah. on that view, 
you want a time machine? Just make sure your future self sends it back to you. <laughs> right? Because there, there's your time machine. Yeah. Why, why bother going through building it or anything like that? Yeah. Right? If, if self-creating loops are possible, which in a universe that allowed time travel and there was no change in the past, you could just send the time machine back to yourself. That's how did you get your first time machine? Yeah. It just magically appeared because my future self sent it to me. That's how I got, that's that kind of story. Yeah. It's, there's, I still, I right. still can't, which, I still which, can't get there. It's so, right. so hard to understand that. But, but you sort of have to be able to accept like, but do, do, everything, notice everything in the chain has an explanation for when I just told it, right? Mm -hmm. Where did the Octurians come from who showed up in Earth's past? Well, they came from up there, right? Yeah. So we got that. And why is it that humans developed? Well, because the Octurians did their yeah. thing back then. And why is it that the humans developed into Octurians? Well, because they did this thing. And how did the Octurians develop time travel? Well, because they did this scientific discovery. And what did they do with that scientific discovery? Oh, they sent some of them back to make sure that, but yeah. that's the story. And I can explain every part of the story, right? It's just we don't like it somehow because the loop sort of comes back in on itself. Uh -huh. And some people are like, well, how do you explain the loop? I'm like, what, what do you mean explain the there's loop? loop? There's just, there's, there's just no loop. There's just one, there's one chain that God, and I just told you, uh, here's God's description of the universe from beginning to end. Yeah. Where's the problem? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, okay, another view about time travel. You go back and you change the past, right? The, you going back, doing things. Loads of science fiction stories about that, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm going to go back and I'm going to get Hitler before he does all his bad things. Let's suppose you succeed. There are plenty of stories where actually you jump forward to your new, better future and you're like, oh my God, this is way worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Holy crap. <laughs> yeah. I thought I was making things better by doing this. Right. And so then the story goes, oh, let's jump back and try and put it back the way it was. Yeah. Right. Undo my changes. Uh, those stories, I think, are inconsistent. Uh -huh. There is no getting back to the way it was. There is a way to tell changing the past stories. On that, trying to tell the Octurian story on that one is harder, but not impossible. <sighs> Somehow... Uh, what you have to imagine is that the humans develop independently on their own, right? God's launching the universe. Mm -hmm. We get to the point where the Octurians go, uh, we wish we could be better than we are. Uh -huh. How are we going to make ourselves better than we are? Well, we've just been talking about making ourselves better by trying to improve upon the stuff we've already got. We're looking towards the future. The Octurian solution is, oh, wait, we're going to make ourselves better than we are because we want to make ourselves better than we are right now. Uh, we're going to go back in time <laughs> and make those people back there even better, uh -huh. right? So that we can be better right now. <laughs> so they send some of their guys back and sure enough, they change things, right? They make things better. I didn't get that. Could you try again? <laughs> I know. It's hard, Siri. It's hard. <laughs> you have the best Siri of all time. It's the most accurate <laughs> Most, this is incredible. Uh, you have a special, you have a special. I understand why you're such a good professor now. You have your cheating. I see, right? Siri is just keeping me on track. Right. Uh, so, so they're going to make, so they make it better, uh -huh. right? And they, 
And so we could imagine those Arcturians who, who did their little tweak, they then jump forward into the future to see, to check. And they get back and sure enough, things have changed. Things are even more miraculous and better than they were before. And um, they, they, they go, oh, wait, we succeeded. And the guys, the Arcturians are like, who are you? Where, where, where are you guys coming from? Yeah, we got time travel, but we didn't send anybody back to Earth. We didn't need to. We're already yeah, as good yeah, as we yeah. can. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? yeah. From the perspective of that future, yeah. like they're going to be like, where did you guys come from? We don't, yeah. we don't have any record so of you. there's inconsistency there. Because you've changed. It's not that it's an inconsistency. You've literally changed how the past was. Now, there is a way to model this uh-huh. as long as um, you, you, uh, you, you can't, I was about to say you can't do it without an extra time-like dimension, but I've actually got some colleagues who are trying to come up with some inventive ways to get around even that restriction. Uh Uh But one of the ways I've done it in print is, hey, look, what you have to imagine is you now can talk about the first time through. But what you can't do on this is generate loops because notice the loop's gone. It's Mm. not as if, um, Mm. it's, it's not as if, and I talk about those Arcturians who jump back to the future. Like the people are going to have, who are you? We have no record of you ever existing. Mm-hmm. Right. You, 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 you changed you, the, you, 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 right. You've changed. You, you're right. And the question is, well, where are they from? So here's one metaphor for understanding. So you can imagine like you've got a layer of paint and what the guys, the time travels went back and then they started a new layer of paint over the top. And of course, where are the Arcturians from? Well, they're from the bottom layer of paint. And they've just now created a new layer and now they're part of the new layer. But of course, from the perspective of the new layer, they look like they just popped out of thin air. Yeah. So this is kind of a multiverse hypothesis, basically, right? right? So it's, it's sort of like a multiverse, but we got to be careful if we want it to actually be time travel and changing the past. It, it's cheating if you just appeal to multiverses because then it's sort of like, oh, wait, I can solve some of these time travel paradoxes by saying what you really do is you go and kill Hitler in an alternate universe. And uh-huh. sure enough, that alternate universe is such that Hitler doesn't develop and you're hoping that's a better universe. Yeah. Um, and let's suppose, of course, but here's the magic. I want you to imagine jumping back to your original universe. Did you yeah. get what you wanted? Yeah. You Presumably, yeah, no. you, no, you no. wanted this universe no. to yeah. be better, right? You were trying to change it so that, so that's in some sense, I'm like, is that time travel? It's universe hopping. Uh-huh. And I, I, in some sense, if I'm universe hopping, are the universes lined up in a way? Like, how could I tell whether I've traveled in time or not or whether, oh, I pushed the button on my time machine right. and it turns out, oh, it's really just a universe hopping machine. And I appear somewhere that looks like 1846 England. But in that universe, what looks like 1846 corresponds with 2022 Mm -hmm. (laughs) and because the universes are just lined up that way. How could I tell whether I'd actually traveled in time or not if I was just universe hopping? So both of my models of time travel were trying to get it so that, oh, you're not just universe hopping. But I will grant my metaphor sort of is conducive to thinking in terms of branching universes. But I really want you to imagine that like the paint the paint stops when you travel back in time and starts a new layer. And if I get another time travel, 
paint stops and I get a layer on top. And then I, right? So in some sense, on that model, time travel is extremely powerful because the guys who travel back in time basically terminate that branch. Mm. That means they kill everybody who's left behind. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's bad. <laughs> but you get changing the past. You get no causal loops. What makes time travel stories, a lot of time travels that are written, problematic is you want elements from both in your story. Right. Like the movie Looper mm-hmm. smears both of these models together into one from a from a consistency perspective, unholy mess. Mm. It was a good movie. I went, I went to it with a colleague. It was a fun yeah. movie. Yeah, sure. And I'm just in my head it was going, a good movie. I'm in my head going, and it is gets for consistency, it gets an F. <laughs> right. I'm just like, uh, um, but because you're trying to take these elements that are really cool elements and smear them together in a way that you just can't. You can't get it. So they wanted changing the past in their thing. And yet they were also trying to tell a story where they wanted the loops. And I'm like, you can't have both. Uh The loops show up in models of time travel where there is no changing the past. Yeah. And if you do allow for changing the past, now you better not have loops and you have to live, part of the problem for cinematography is you have to live with the consequences. I mean, here's a typical time travel story. The good guys go back in time to do something. They accidentally change something. They come to the future. They realize the future is really bad. Oh, we need to fix the problem. Go back, fix the problem. Everything's back to the way it was. But if you're changing the past, you never make it back to the way it was. You can make it back to way something that looks very similar to the way it was. Mm -hmm. But that's like asking me to somehow make it back to the bottom layer of paint when we are four layers of paint up. Yeah. And you may, it may burn, be, hey, awesome. I like that color. Let's get a change. I'm going to paint over it with a new color. Oh, don't like that color anymore. Here, here's a new color. You know what? I really like that first color. Mm. And I'm going to put another layer of paint. Same color, looks the same, but it's not the same layer of paint. Yeah. It's the fourth layer. Unless, and, and so, so what that actually means is it's not a new layer of paint. It would be universe hopping. Yeah. yeah. Or, or, or what you've done is you've made this universe look very similar to that universe, but it isn't the same yeah, people. Yeah. It's not the same. It's, it's actually got a different history. It okay. So, so let me, let me try, let me try this, this concept on to see if it makes sense. And, and it's kind of like your first, it's kind of like your first thing where in the, in the, in the mind of God, yeah. this is, this has just happened. Right. This is the way it is. Every, everything, Every, ha- everything happens once. Everything happens once. And the everything that happens once is everything that could possibly happen. Uh, like, so let's say, let's say I posit uh, that. Let's yeah, say I yeah, posit yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything happens once, but the everything that happens once is a multiverse where everything possible happens. It's infinity. Oh, it's an infinite yeah. amount of multiverse <laughs> timeline <laughs> where actually there's a whole other universe where I take this can yep. and I move it here, yeah, 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 yeah. over here. And this yeah, yeah. has now created a branching universe yeah, based yeah, yeah, on yeah. my free will yeah, yeah, choice yeah. Yeah, yeah. that allows for free will, but the free will is the infinite amount of free will possibilities where I could make every other choice where there's right. another choice where I just yeah. put this down here and it's actually altered the universe just slightly. Yeah. And now we're in a new, we're, we're in a new timeline right? based on my perspective, which also contributes to this, yeah. this universe. And, and I guess that may be 
maybe a premise that I'm, I'm kind of now starting to be okay with that right. from God's perspective, all possible realities have happened and they only happen once. Right. And we choose which part- which reality right. we abide in yeah. from our perspectival purview. Right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to take the time travel out of the yeah, mix yeah, yeah. here for a second. Um, so you could imagine that every time you make a decision or some quantum decay happens or something that, that the universe literally branches into multiple paths. And so um, you could imagine that let's pretend that there's a big bang with initial universe state and that there's all these branching possibilities from that initial state. And it's an huge, infinite amount infinite, of branching. And, right. Or, okay. or if it's not infinite, it's a huge right. finite number. So more right, near infinite or whatever. Um, you're, you've, you've done this and that's partially how you're planning on explaining, um, um, like free will in the sense that, Hey, Mm -hmm. what does it mean to say I could have done this? Well, Hey, look, there's a branch right at that point where in fact I did do it in that branch. And you could say that all of those branches are equally real. Like there's, there is a you in that other branch that's going on and doing something else. And there is a me in this other branch that says something other than what I say right now. Yeah, we can do that. Um, and this is one, one model. All the possibilities are in some sense just as actual. Of course, we only have access to the branch we're in. Yeah. And, um, and you get some really cool science fiction stories that are based just on that hypothesis. Like what if you could sort of suddenly travel to another branch? Or... Uh, I'm trying to think who it is. Um, maybe it was Blake Crouch, like Black Matter or something like that. It's, but it's basically the the challenge for him is he's got this guy who has um, sort of figured out a way to travel to these other universes. Now the challenge for him is to get back. And of course, since every decision he makes is creating new branches, there are a whole bunch of him who have in fact succeeded in getting to other universes. Yes. Right. And so he gets back to what he thinks is his universe. But there are a whole bunch of other guys who also think they are him at <laughs> back in that universe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, trying to sort things out now. And it's a it's a great story. Just but that's just traveling in the universe. What in in the multiverse? How uh, um I think this TV show Sliders from way back when had this similar sort of problem is you you travel to another universe, okay. You jump back to one that looks an awful lot like yours. Mm-hmm. Are you sure it's yours? Because after all, if there are a whole bunch of branching universes, there's a whole bunch of universes where a bunch of you went to different universes. Yeah, so there, there's no back. There's just the universe that you're in. Yeah, there's just the universe you're in. And you may you may turn out, oh, did you originate in that universe? Or is this a universe left vacant by another one of you jumping? <laughs> the one who jumped two seconds later. Right, right, because right, right. He had to stop and tie his shoe, and you didn't. Yeah, <laughs> and or you waited to tie your shoe until you got the other universe. He stopped, tied his shoe in this universe, and then jumped. Right, uh, you would have all these sort of possibilities. Now, the question I think that becomes interesting is, what happens if I throw time travel into the mix here? <sighs> and I think if you're going to play the game where time travel does there's no changing the past i think time travel has the impact of cutting off all the branches in that particular zone i think that Uh. that 
When the Arcturians made that decision to travel back in time uh-huh. to say, we want to make ourselves right. better. If we're in a universe where the past doesn't change, but they, in fact, they may have believed they were going, this is why we're going to uh, travel back in time. We want to make ourselves better than we are now. It turns out that they needed to do that because that is the very cause of them traveling back in time. The, of their existence. Their ex- very existence. Um, and so I said it, it was a closed causal loop. And God can explain everything in the loop. But it turns out that when you're in that loop, there is no alternative. There are no things. Well, it could have gone this way. It's like, what do you mean it could have gone this way? Mm-hmm. They are in a universe and with a past like this. What made it have a past like this? The fact that they traveled back in time. So they cannot, on pain of logical inconsistency, do anything other than that. Mm-hmm. That looks like a serious challenge to free will. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is why it's sort of disturbing in one sense. I think you, you want to be able to go back and have your free will and change the past, but you somehow want to be able to get back to your origin point. And I'm like, it's really hard for me a way to see that you can have both of those desires simultaneously. I guess, I guess for me, what I, what I, what I would go to is that in this, this, this reality that I'm in this, this universe that I'm in, this, this had, this had to happen in that, in that future, it had to happen for this reality to exist. And that choice was made Yeah, and it did happen and we're living in that and but I guess there's ways in which we could make choices that would actually turn out like we could destroy the earth. And right. that is a possibility right. that this is one of the generative right. loops where right. they actually did do that. Right. But actually, right, right, right. we, we oh, still yeah, can yeah, choose yeah, yeah, and yeah, we yeah. can still fuck yeah, it up yeah. from here. Right. Yeah. So this is good. This is good. Right. Because remember, I, I didn't say that all the branching disappears completely. What I wanted to say is the branching from, from the point of their arrival to the point of their departure, there's no logically consistent way to tell that story other than it in fact happens. There is no alternate Mm. choices, but you could mean something else by an alternate choice because I can go to another universe that branches from that universe in which, um, uh, there is no time travel whatsoever in it, in that universe. And now that's got all the things that you thought you were possibly could do. All of them happen over there. It's just, it's not one of your available branchings. Why? Sucks to be in a universe where somebody traveled back in time (laughs) and made the universe fixed the way it is, (laughs) right? But it's not like there aren't other possibilities. And I think this is one of the reasons why we tend to think, oh, but, but the universe could have been like that. And I was like, yeah, it could have been like that if there had been no time travel. And it even could be part of the multi-universe branching from, it's just gonna branch from a point before the time travel happened yeah. or before the arrival of the time traveler back in the past. Have you seen any films? I think, wasn't it the movie Arrival with Jodie Foster that was yes. like a time travel yeah. and alien yeah, type yeah, of yeah, things? Yeah. Like, have you seen any of them? And then there's the Interstell- Interstellar's one that yeah. I'm actually more familiar yeah, with, yeah. right? Which seems to be a problem for me as well, because he goes into that one quantum place where he starts pushing on the books books, and the pushing on the books then creates this 
this whole thing where so his daughter that, saves yeah, yeah. His, his daughter yeah. saves him by yeah. getting this thing that actually allows and, and it's like how is that I, possible? I go A for consistency on this one. Okay, good. Yeah, I good. think this one gets. I mean, because and it turns out there is no changing. Not he doesn't change anything. What we get is an explanation for why all the various things happen the way they happen. It just turns out some of the explanations involve causation going the wrong way in the sense yeah. that it's him doing something in the future that's causing the books in the past to do their thing. Yeah. But does anything change? Like if God were to watch this yeah. from front, he's like, yeah, that's how it happened. Why is it? That, so this is it, the first, why, this is the first explanation of the Arcturian story, basically. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This and is the, the first. The yeah, I think Interstellar gets it right in that respect that it's just telling that story. Um, um, uh, a store, a movie that I think gets pretty close to ninety-five uh, percent. Uh, Deja Vu with Denzel Washington, mm -hmm. the one where they're trying to—he's trying to solve a murder, and it turns out he comes—he comes yeah. across some guys who propose sending him back in time to prevent this big disaster and stuff like that. That one, they. Um, is a great changing the past movie. Like I, they're almost, almost 95% consistent. And then the movie makers decide they want to get cute and they throw one tiny causal loop mm -hmm. into the story. Whereas they, if they left it out, <laughs> I would have been like, yes. And it turns out one of the things about if you can't, um, if, you, if you can change the past, you're going to get these object duplications. And so there literally is one point where you have two Denzel Washingtons running around at the same time. Uh, one of them is sort of, uh, how to put it, older is one way to try and describe it. But I'd say one of them is from, let's call it the first time through, and one of them is from the second time through. Uh -huh. And, of course, this causes problems. And I understand why movie makers wouldn't like this model of time travel because, all right. Here's what I say happens. You go back and fix what you did in the past. So now your past is very similar to the way it is now. Well, guess what? There should be a bunch of you, your team. There should be, your team should be there. Wait, why did you guys, who are you? We're, yeah, we're yeah, this team, right? Yeah, because yeah, yeah. you didn't have to, you saw, they solved it. So uh -huh. of course they didn't have to go back in time. So you jumped into the future. All right, who owns all your stuff now? Because there are two of you, or three of you. Or who's going to have sex with your wife? Yeah, right, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Um, but, but Deja Vu took that seriously. Like, yeah, there are going to be two of them. We got to figure out a way to solve this problem that there are going to be two of them. What do you think about the, what do you think about the, because actually if you went back in time, you're actually adding are you, you seem to be adding energy into right, the yeah. universe, yeah. like an energy. Uh, if you take that law as true, energy yeah, yeah. cannot be either created or destroyed. You're actually adding energy. You're right. taking energy, future energy, adding it right. to a past universe. Right. Yeah, yeah. So that seems like that's also right. some potential realm of inconsistency. Right. Yeah, yeah. So uh, let's let's do the easy case first. Uh, the easy case first is the no change universe. Um, but some people worry that somehow what you're doing is you're moving some of the energy from this location to this location. Um, I'm going to go, okay, we don't really have a problem here because it's all I need is conservation of matter and energy in, in a closed system, right? And so the system's just the whole universe and 
what I need is this same amount. The fact that I clump it in certain times isn't a problem. The, uh-huh. the average amount is the same all the way through, right? I right. haven't really created it. I've just shifted it around by time travel. Mm-hmm. Changing the past model is way more complicated. Uh, in any particular universe, it's going to look like I am violating uh, energy, matter energy conservation. Because here's the thing. I mean, if you can literally change the past, all right, so here's what I do. Uh, I, I said how to get your time machine, right? You, you, you send yourself a time machine. Uh, you can't do that in a changing the past universe because you actually have to do the work because there is no time machine. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you can change the past, so um, here's what you do. You, uh, how do I want to do this? Um, um, I, I, I have some resources. Uh, I, I, I go back that I know are going to show up in the future. So I bring them back to me with the past, right? And they're there in the past too. And then, so we wait, we wait the hundred years. And now I have two pairs of those resources because I have the ones I got and yeah. the one that was there. Yeah, yeah. So now this, since they're both there, this time I get both of them, put them in my time machine, go back in time. And now I've got three sets of the resources mm-hmm. and I could just keep generating more and more of the resources this way. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I am getting thing out of there. But this is just sort of the object duplication problem because I said, hey, here's what happens. Uh, I get in my time. I fi- just finished my building my time machine, right? I get in my time machine. I push the button. I go back five minutes. This changes the past, right? But it doesn't make any significant changes. It's just now there are two time machines sitting in my lab and there are two of me because the other guy goes, oh, it worked, <laughs> right? And now, of course, Oh, let's both go. <laughs> so they both go back in time. And now, of course, they both jump forward. And now, of course, there's a guy. Oh, it worked. Let's Four all time go. machines. Right, yeah, let's just keep going, right? <laughs> Infinite can, time machine. Right, you right. get a time machine. You, you get, get a time machine. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, this looks like it's violating matter energy uh, conservation. Certainly within what looks like the accessible universe. Right. It does. But now I got to be careful what counts as the closed system. Because remember my layers of paint analogy, mm-hmm. right? The closed system now includes every single layer of paint and everything in each one has an explanation. What I'm doing is I'm literally taking objects from each layer and compressing them into one layer, right? That's where my time, my, my first time machine came from layer one. Yeah. Then we went jump to layer two. Now there are, and my guy, I didn't influence me in that timeline creating a time machine. Ah, so now there's the time machine I have and the time machine the guy in layer two created. Awesome. Two time machines. We both jumped to layer three. Doesn't influence the creation of the time machine in that. Awesome. Three. And so, of course, we're just condensing them into a, a layer. Okay. I don't so, know how to respond to that. Next theory. <laughs> um, have I actually violated matter energy conversion or I have, what I've done is what I've done is just sort of uh, the, the system is bigger than I thought it was. Right. Right. And includes and all the layers. It includes the all the layers in the system. And what I've done is I've compressed stuff from taking stuff from one layer and just moved it to another layer. So it looks like from any layers perspective, it looks like I'm violating matter energy conversion uh, conservation. 
Yeah. Right. But if we take all the layers combined, not yet clear to me that I violated that principle. <laughs> this was a ride. Let's go get a beer and watch some FIFA. Yes, indeed. <laughs> who is the philosopher who said that? Let's go get a beer. Yeah, Hume? David Hume. Right? David Hume. David Hume. I think it's time to Hume out. Yeah. Have a beer and and watch some FIFA. This has been uh, this has been fantastic. Awesome. Thanks, awesome. Thanks for thanks for coming in and exploring this with me. It's yeah. like. It's such a pleasure to be in the in this pure philosophy realm again, and and also stretching my own capacity. Yeah. Where it's like, and and that's the beauty I think of of the philosophy of science fiction kind of ideas. Right. It's like you're you're creating things that are at the very edge of our own comprehension and, and using rules that apply to other simpler things like the chicken and the egg and the tree, right. which were very easy to solve. And now we're getting into time travel. Okay, yeah. now we're really stretching. stretching. Siri has stretching. to come stretching. in and check, check us. Check, check, check us. And <laughs> I don't understand. I don't understand. I mean, and that's, you know, that was Socrates' response. I don't understand. Help me try and understand. And then I'm going to ask you some questions about what you think is the truth. And then to help me understand. And those questions might show, oh, you didn't understand it as much as you wanted. But the goal is still to get to Socratic wisdom or understanding, not to just win points. Yeah. Amen. Thank you so much. And, uh, and, and look, uh, if you're out there, uh, University of Richmond, it's, it's pretty dope. <laughs> it's pretty dope. I had, a, I had a fucking blast there. Yeah. Yeah. So check it out. And, uh, and then you can maybe take a class with, uh, with Dr. Goddard if you're, if you're listening and, uh, thanks brother. I appreciate right. this. And Thank thanks. you. Anything else, anything else you want to share with the audience? Here? Oh, I think we're good. Thank you. That's right. great. Beautiful. Yeah. This is, a, this is a lot of fun. Thanks everybody. Love you. See you next week. Thanks for tuning into this show with Dr. Gadu. I hope this inspires your philosophical minds and you start exploring these interesting questions and perhaps look at time travel movies slightly in a different light. I love you guys and I'll see you next week.